Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Welcome to Capital Power's first quarter 2021 results conference call. As a reminder, all participants are in listen mode only, and the conference is being recorded today, April 30th, 2021. I would now like to call, turn the call over to Mr. Randy Ma, the Director of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today to review Capital Power's first quarter 2021 results, which we released earlier this morning. Our first quarter report and the presentation for this conference call are posted on our website at capitalpower.com. Joining me on the call are Brian Bajo, President and CEO, and Sandra Haskins, Senior Vice President of Finance and CFO. We will start with opening comments and then open the lines to take your questions. Before we start, I would like to remind everyone that certain statements about future events made on this call are forward-looking in nature and are based on certain assumptions and analysis made by the company. Actual results could differ materially from the company's expectations due to various risks and uncertainties associated with our business. Please refer to the cautionary statement on forward-looking information on slide two. In today's discussion, we will be referring to various non-GAAP financial measures as noted on slide three. These measures are not defined financial measures according to GAAP and do not have standardized meanings prescribed by GAAP and therefore are unlikely to be comparable to similar measures used by other enterprises. These measures are provided to complement the GAAP measures which are provided in the analysis of the company's results from management's perspective. Reconciliations of these non-GAAP financial measures to their nearest GAAP measures can be found in our first quarter 2021 MD&A. I will now turn the call over to Brian Vagel for his remarks starting on slide four. Thanks, Randy, and good morning. I'll start off with the highlights of the first quarter and comment on our 2021 outlook. We delivered strong first quarter results that exceeded our expectations. This was the first quarter where all generation and Alberta power market was dispatched by commercial market participants following the expiry of the balancing pool PPAs. The strong quarterly results confirm the Alberta power market is truly robust. Earlier this month, we executed an innovative 15-year renewable energy agreement with Labatt Brewing Company for the Enchant Solar Project that I'll cover off in, in more detail shortly. With a strong first quarter and higher Alberta forward prices for 2021, we are forecasting our 2021 financial performance will be modestly above the top end of our annual adjusted EBITDA and AFFO guidance ranges. We also continue to make solid progress on our approximately $1.7 billion in growth projects. I'll also provide an update on our various CO2 reduction initiatives. Turning to slide five, as mentioned, we've entered into an innovative partnership with Labatt for the Enchant Solar Project. It is a 15-year renewable energy agreement for the sale of electricity and RECs. The virtual PPA is for 51% of the electricity from the Achan Solar Project that covers all of the electricity requirement for Labatt's Canadian operations. Approximately one quarter of the RECs will come directly from Achan Solar, and three quarters will be packaged with RECs sourced from Eastern Canada to closely align with Labatt's operations footprint. The 75-megawatt Enchant Solar Project is expected to begin commercial operation in the fourth quarter of 2022. When we announced the project in November 2020, our original guidance was $11 million in adjusted EBITDA and $12 million in AFFO on average per year for the first five years. This financial guidance continues to be reasonable with, the, with upside from a higher value of RECs based on the federal carbon tax. Overall, the agreement with Labatt will strengthen our contracted cash flow, extends our average contract life, and support progress towards a low-carbon economy. I'll now turn the call over to Sandra. Thanks, Brian. I'll begin my comments by going over the Alberta power market on slide six. 
Extreme cold temperatures in February set a new daily record for demand and contributed to a high average power price of $95 per megawatt hour in the quarter compared to a $67 per megawatt hour average in the first quarter of 2020. In the first quarter, our trading desk captured an average realized price of $77 per megawatt hour that was 24% higher than a year ago. The positive outlook for the Alberta power market is being reflected in higher 2021 forward prices that have steadily increased over the past few months and currently sit at $79 per megawatt hour. For our Alberta commercial portfolio, our base load generation is 30% hedged in 2022 at an average contract price in the mid $50 per megawatt hour range. For 2023 and 24, we're 24% and 10% hedged respectively at an average contract price in the mid $50 per megawatt hour range for both years. This compares to current forward prices of $63 per megawatt hour for 2022, $54 for 2023, and $51 in 2024. Moving to slide seven, I'll review our financial results for the quarter. Overall, financial results in the first quarter were strong. This includes revenues and other income of 554 million, up 4% compared to the first quarter of 2020, largely due to the higher revenues generated from all three units at Genesee. Adjusted EBITDA of 303 million was 29% higher than a year ago. Higher adjusted EBITDA for the Alberta commercial facilities benefited from a higher realized power price of $77 per megawatt hour compared to $62 per megawatt hour in Q1 of 2020. The higher price in the quarter was partially offset by lower generation during periods of milder temperatures in January and March that resulted in lower demand. The results for the U.S. contracted facilities reflects a full quarter of contributions from Buckthorn Wind that was acquired on April 1, 2020, and Cardinal Point that began commercial operations on March 16, 2020. First quarter results include the impacts from the February winter storm in the U.S. that caused some disruptions primarily to our Buckthorn Wind facility in Texas. The net impact for this facility is a positive $8 million to adjusted EBITDA and AFFO. These are updated numbers on the impacts of the winter storm and replaces the preliminary estimates that we disclosed in late February. Also mentioned in that news release, during the peak days of the storm, our trading desk physically flowed power around North America that contributed another $6 million to adjusted EBITDA. Net corporate expenses were $3 million compared to $17 million a year ago, largely due to higher recognition of coal compensation revenue in Q1 2021 as a result of powering of Genesee 1 and 2, which was announced in late 2020. We generated $159 million in AFSO. That was 35% higher than a year ago. AFSO per share of $1.49 was up 33% from the first quarter of 2020. I'll now turn the call back to Brian. Thanks, Sandra. Turning to slide eight, I'll review our first quarter performance versus our 2021 annual results. Average availability was 96% in the first quarter. That included a major planned outage at Decatur. The 93% annual target reflects major planned outages for Shepard in the second quarter and Genesee 2 in the fourth quarter. Sustaining CapEx was $18 million in the first quarter compared to the $80 to $90 million annual target. We recorded $303 million in adjusted EBITDA in the first quarter versus the $975 million to $1.025 billion target and we generated $159 million of AFFO in the first quarter compared to the $500 million to $550 million target range. As mentioned, based on our current forecast, we expect adjusted EBITDA and AFFO to be modestly above the top end of their guidance ranges. Our growth targets are highlighted <clears throat> on slide nine. We continue to make progress on all of our renewable projects. This includes developing and constructing seven renewable projects on budget and on time 
for commercial operations starting in the first quarter of this year to the first, first quarter of 2022. Construction on the repowering of Genesee 1 and 2 is expected to begin in the third quarter of this year with in-service dates targeted in late 2023 for Genesee 1 and in 2024 for Genesee 2. As in previous years, we have, target, we have a target of $500 million of committed capital for growth that is aligned with our strategy of growing our renewable assets and or acquiring midlife contracted natural gas assets. Turning to slide 10, I'll provide an update on the various CO2 reduction initiatives that we have underway. Carbon Corp, the legal entity for C2CNT, recently won the NRG COSIA Carbon X Factor Award. It was one of the two Canadian companies that were honored for creating excellent products. The development and marketing of the Genesee Carbon Conversion Center and Carbon Nanotubes uh, it w is well underway, with an expected operational date in mid-2022. The first phase of the GC3 will produce 2,500 carbon nanotubes per year from carbon emissions of Genesee 3. We are also developing plans to apply carbon capture, utilization, and storage technology at Genesee 1 and 2. Expected federal and provincial funding will support this initiative, which should deliver 3 million tons of annual carbon emission reductions. These CCUS initiatives support our goal of contributing to a low-carbon energy future. In closing, I'll provide an update on the executive team as shown on slide 11. Darcy Trufin, our Senior VP of Operations, Engineering and Construction, will be retiring at the end of June. Darcy has been with Capital Power for 12 years and has continually delivered outstanding performance in operations and has successfully managed the development and construction of all of our growth projects over the past decade. I'd like to publicly thank Darcy for his tremendous contribution to Capital Power. Steve Owens, who is currently VP of Construction, will be promoted to Senior VP Construction and Engineering effective June 1st. This is an example of our robust internal succession planning. At the same time, Brian Deneve will take on a new role as Senior Vice President of Operations, relinquishing his commercial and business development responsibilities. Chris Kopecki will add business development and commercial to his responsibilities and will be the Senior VP of Chief and Chief Legal Development and Commercial Officer. Prior to joining the executive leadership team last year, Chris led our U.S. business development team in Boston. Kate Chisholm, Sandra Haskins, Jackie Polipiak will continue in their current roles. I'm confident this executive team will continue delivering value for our shareholders. I'll now turn the call back over to Randy. All right, thanks, Brent. Shauna, we're ready to start the Q&A session. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star, then one on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star, then two. We will pause for a moment as callers join the queue. Our, our first question comes from David Quezada from Raymond James. Please go ahead. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Thanks. Morning, everyone. Um, uh, first question here, just on the, the outlook for the Alberta power market. Um, obviously, this was the first quarter, as you mentioned, with... Uh, the balancing pool PPA has expired, but we also saw very supportive weather. Just wondering if you could provide any kind of qualitative commentary on how uh, the dispatch might have been different in the quarter uh, as opposed to when the balancing pool PPA is in place. Um, yeah, any comments around that would be helpful. 
Yeah, thanks, David. You know, as we saw even coming through uh, late last year, the anticipation of uh, the balancing pool exiting the market had had an impact. We saw a lot of supply response uh, starting, you know, with retirements and mothballing. And now that we're into 2021, we are seeing um, all assets being managed in a, in a commercially optimization uh, approach, and that, that has re- um, led to the higher prices that we expected that, that we would see. You know, in Q1, we did have periods of, of mild weather, um, but certainly in February when we had extreme cold weather, you did see uh, uh, periods of very high prices. So I think that the market dynamics have unfolded the way we would, and would have expected they would in, uh, in this in post-PPA environment. Excellent. Thank you. Appreciate that. And then maybe just one on the uh, the the plans to add carbon capture at Genesee one and two. Um, appreciate it's probably early days, but any any color you can provide on uh, what the capital cost might be there and and how uh, the province or the federal and provincial funding uh, support would play in. Um, so you know we're looking at at a project in in the order of magnitude of about 1.6 billion um, that uh, again you know results in about three million tons of carbon uh, being uh, being essentially buried uh, a year. So it's a you know very significant a very significant volume. Um, in terms of the federal funding and and uh, provincial participation, um, I think you've you've probably seen in the press some fairly significant dollars being being tossed around in terms of uh, in terms of potential support for these kinds of initiatives. Um, the way it's uh, starting to play out a bit, and again, extremely uh, preliminary, as, as you may know, there's about to be a 90-day consultation period to actually work out some of the mechanics and directions um, led by the federal government. But some of the early indications are that you know something like the US 45Q may be uh, a, a way to to approach it, whereby you you get a tax credit for every uh, ton of carbon that that's essentially buried, and that um, you know it may well be that that it could actually be paid out as well, not not only uh, from a tax credit perspective. Uh, there's also some uh, consideration for you know significant support. Uh, from the Canadian Infrastructure Bank as well. And then, of course, some of the traditional approaches of making applications both federally and provincially for various kinds of support associated with uh, carbon capture and utilization. And I should also add that it's also, um, you know, there's, there's also, you know, some considerable support anticipated for hydrogen technology as well. That's great, color. Thanks, Brian. Um, I'll get back in the queue. Our next question comes from Rob Hope from Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Yes, uh, morning, everyone. Um, just in terms of the Buckthorn dispute, can you just kind of walk us through the potential avenues and timing of, uh, of uh, you know, when that could be resolved? And just to confirm, the $8 million benefit that you saw in Q1, you received the cash on that, and that did flow through the cash flow statement? Thanks. Yeah, yeah. As far as the timeline, that's uh, there's no certainty around um, um, when that will unfold. We expect that there's a, a good chance that that'll be settled uh, within this year, but uh, still to be determined. Um, as far as the cash flow, yes, um, we we are uh, paying in accordance to to what we view as as uh, being the appropriate number. So that that has flown through appropriately through the statements. All right, appreciate the color. Uh, and then just a follow-up question for me. So, um, you know, we, we saw updated uh, uh, disclosure on hedging for 22 and beyond, we, and you have kind of increased some uh, some hedges there. You know, are you also increasing your hedge profile for the rest of 2021? And maybe could you give some kind of color on, on what that shape looks like, just so we can kind of, you know, triangulate, you know, what modestly above uh, the 2021 guidance looks like? Yeah, as, as you may recall, up until last year, we didn't uh, give any indication of our change in hedge position as we came through the year. Last year was a bit of an anomaly, given that it was a pandemic year. So, um, But what I can say is that uh, we continue to layer on hedges when we see that uh, the price is appropriate to do so. 
Um, as you know, we came into the year fairly unhedged, and that was by design, and that's played out uh, in our favor. And so we continue to use the same uh, approach when we're looking at uh, stepping into more hedges. Um, as far as liquidity, there has been an increase in, in liquidity that we've seen in this year and even going out a, a little bit further. Um, so th those opportunities are there, but once again, it's, it's all relative to, to our price view. And actually, sorry, one more follow-up. Has your price view changed so far this year, just seeing how the, uh, how the dynamics in the Alberta power market have changed, or is it still uh, kind of what you uh, presented at kind of Q4 and at the investor day? Yeah, I think what we had at Investor Day was below what uh, we're seeing here. Uh, it does have some shape to it, but uh, generally there there has been a, a slight lift from from what we took as uh, maybe a optimistic yet somewhat conservative view at that point in time, given where where the forwards were. But uh, things have on uh, played out to be um, to be more favorable than what uh, we had used at Investor Day. All right, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Our next question comes from Patrick Kenny from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Um, just wondering first if you could walk us through the accelerated uh, recognition of coal compensation revenue just as it relates to um, repowering Genesee, you know, what the increase in quarterly revenue might might be going forward. And does this actually change the actual uh, annual cash amount to be received? To be, you know, received by the government between now and 2029. Yeah, thanks, Pat. So the the amount that we receive each year in cash is 50 million, and that doesn't change. So we'll continue to see those payments, and and that's reflected in AFFO um, at at 50 million dollars uh, per year. On adjusted EBITDA, the coal comp recognition is amortized over the period that you're actually burning coal. So because we announced um, uh, to be off coal in 2023, we do recognize those payments uh, at the same time as we're depreciating the assets that are underlying that compensation. So that's where you get the accelerated recognition that goes through the income statement and impacts adjusted EBITDA. So we currently have on a quarterly basis, we recognize about $31 million of uh, off coal compensation uh, compared to last year, which was $11 million. So it's about a $20 million an increase per quarter. Okay, that's very helpful, but no change, like you said, to the, the cash inflows on an annual basis. Okay. No, that, um, that's correct. Excellent. And then maybe just to circle back on the, uh, the Buckthorn dispute there, and you know, you haven't taken a, a provision on the $18 million exposure. So just maybe you could provide a little bit more color as to, you know, why you feel so confident in your position. Um, and I appreciate it's probably sensitive to talk about, but uh, perhaps you can just point to um, something to give us confidence in, you know, there, there may not be an unfavorable ruling uh, down the road or some sort of um, recognition of, of that $18 million. No, absolutely. From an accounting perspective, when it, when the outcome is more likely than not that you'll be successful, then you would recognize the, the favorable outcome. And in our view, the contract uses very plain language in terms of which reference uh, point should be used to establish pricing. And um, based on that, um, we feel very confident in, in our position as, as being correct. Um, the counterparty's position of, of uh, using a different uh, settlement point um, is, is generally consistent with, with the uh, reference point outlined in our contract, except for periods where you would see extreme um, differences in supply demand, like the weather event drove uh, in, in Texas in February. So typically there, there wouldn't be a difference um, between uh, the, the reference point in the contract and, and the counterparty's position, but uh, during the February storm, it, it was uh, a quite, quite a different outcome. But in our view, it's very plain language in the contract, and um, therefore we feel very confident in our position. Okay. Thanks for that, Sandra. And then uh, I might have missed it in the disclosure, but just curious if you utilized any of your carbon offset credits in Q1, or were, was there a similar deferral as there was back in, in Q4? 
the carbon offsets all have a, an expiry timeline on them, which is a seven-year life. And given that we have a number of credits in inventory that we expire this year, we expect that we'll be using the full full allotment of offsets this year. So, yes, we did continue to use them in the first quarter. Okay, great. And last one for me, if I could, just um, if you could provide a little bit of a funding uh, plan update here for the you know, incremental $500 million that you're looking to commit to um, this year. Do you expect to be able to finance that fully with debt? Um, perhaps you're looking at partnerships, or uh, would you lean more towards asset sales or equity options at this point? Yeah, it's going to depend on, on how we commit that capital. If it's something that is in the development um, uh, realm, then, you know, we do have a number of options depending on what that spend profile looks like. Um, as we look at our current funding plan, we have seen a, a real flattening of our spend profile. So we had anticipated that a lot of the development uh, for the current projects would be incurred this year. And in fact, that's sort of been pushed out somewhat with a, a deferral uh, from Mitsubishi on repowering uh, being the key driver there also having uh, higher internally generated cash flow. So at this point, you know, we haven't even uh, tapped into our credit facilities to, to fund the current development. So it gives us more capacity to look at uh, incremental committed capital. In the case of an acquisition, it would depend on the size and timing of it. And that's where, you know, we might be uh, more likely to look at uh, asset recycling or, or uh, some other avenue of, of financing. So it, it, it really depends on the nature of the transaction. Right. Okay. That's great, Sandra. Thank you. And it looks like you're off the hook, Brian. Have a great weekend. Our next question comes from Mark Jarvie from CIBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. I wanted to touch on the Genesee assets just in terms of a couple of things on the cost and on the revenue. It seems like the realized price is a little higher than the spot price. Just curious if that's sustainable based on how your bidding behavior is going to be going forward. And then on the cost side, it looks like fuel and O&M are north of $50 a megawatt hour. Is there something abnormal in the quarter, something with the hedges? Maybe just help us on, on the cost side of things as well uh, with a step up year over year. Sorry, Mark, you're looking at the uh, O&M costs at Genesee year over year? Yeah, like Genesee 1 through 2 and 3. If, if you just kind of bundle together, I guess just go from revenue and then the gap to EBITDA and just look at what that spread is and divide by the generation, um, just those that sort of cost per megawatt hour has kind of gone up dramatically year over year. I'm just trying to understand if it's fuel cost, carbon cost, but also maybe some impacts of settlement of hedges or anything like that that goes into that those numbers. Yeah, I think when you look at the generation at those three facilities, it's it's down from from prior years. So there's be a, a high level of fixed costs in there if you're looking at full O and M and operating costs. So your your cost per megawatt hour would would go up um, if you're looking at it in that basis. And then just on the realized pricing being, I think marginally above where the spot price average in the quarter is that something you think you can continue to achieve based on how you're gonna use those assets going forward and for a little bit more economic withholding when possible? Yeah, I, th I think what you're, you are seeing is that there is um, less less generation or, or more, um, as you say, uh, less uh, being bid in, if you will. And so I expect that that probably will be um, the, the dynamics going forward. Yeah. Okay. And then when you think about the renewable projects you have in hand and then more projects potentially in Alberta on the renewable side. When, you, when you're thinking about the, the, the base case and underwriting those projects, like what is sort of the underlying assumption between how much return you need to get from the merchant price versus how much faith you have in the current tier and carbon prices going higher? And you know, what, what, what do you think your philosophy is? And then maybe contrast what we think you might be seeing from other developers out there in terms of how hard they're going to push on, on economics around the value of carbon credits going forward. So, um, in, in terms of the the, the value of, uh, of of carbon credits going forward, I think there's a, there's a number of, of elements um, that we look at, and, and that is, of course, you know, when when we're out looking for longer term contracts to the, to support projects that otherwise would be merchant and we're comfortable from that perspective. 
we're not willing to give up a lot of, um, you know, after you've adjusted for, you know, uh, for risk, uh, we're not uh, willing to give up a lot of value in order to uh, secure a contract. You know, what we rely on is a combination of, you know, solid construction, obviously, and, and development of projects. But, you know, in addition to that, and, and I think, you know, as evidenced in, in, in the Labatt deal, you know, we do have different levers and different, you know, knowledge of markets and so on that we can draw on that, that you know, others uh, who are competing for contracts uh, may not be able to. And also just, uh, you know, our ability in, in the province to have, you know, other, other you know, power generation that we can rely on in terms of providing uh, customers with sort of a complete package and, you know, an ability to, uh, to uh, you know, provide power, you know, 24 hours a day, regardless of whether the sun's shining or the, or the wind's blowing. So, you know, there's a lot that, that we're able to do in, in pull levers that, that others may not. So um, we see that, that, you know, there isn't a need for us to sort of go to any sorts of extremes to ensure that, that uh, we get uh, contracted facilities. You know, as, as indicated, you know, since we embarked on those uh, projects, you know, the uh, carbon price has gone up, you know, the value of, of um, those projects, you know, by definition, likewise would go up and as has, has, you know, implicitly, you know, power prices in the longer term associated with rising carbon prices. So, you know, they sit, you know, quite well from an economic position. Having said that, you know, so so R is the um, the environment for continuing to gain, um, and we are very active in pursuing additional uh, contracts uh, for uh, for long-term uh, commitments associated with our renewable facilities. Okay, and then when some of the comments on on carbon capture and, and, and government support. Um, Obviously, there's an, there's an angle of, of of reducing your emissions intensity, but there's also you obviously would if you put capital work, want to make a return on that. Like, do you have a sense at this point yet on in terms of how much capital you might be willing to put to work in terms of CCUS versus how much would come from federal or government support? And then, like, how how do you think the trade-off of a return on that capital versus the environmental benefits of what that technology does for your company? So when we look at the, the the project, and again, it's early days, but you know we think of it pretty much as a, as as uh, you know similar to a merchant facility, just simply because you're counting on you know some to some degree commodity prices and and so on and so forth. So you know we start looking at returns in that order of magnitude, as opposed to you know lower end contracted returns. You know, as um, we look at different avenues of potential government support, that obviously reduces risk. Um, and so that, that, you know, depending on the nature of the support, then that can, you know, bring down uh, our recurrent expectations. And, you know, if it was a fully uh, guaranteed uh, commodity prices by the government and, you know, uh, significant other bells and whistles, you know, it could get down to almost a contracted uh, rate of return. So that's that's sort of the, the normal economics. And we have started, and I think you've seen in, in some of our narrative that, that, you know, we will start, um, and we're working it out this year, ways in which we can, in our business decisions, uh, incorporate, you know, the uh, ESG implications. Um, having said that, you know, at, at, at this point, and I would say, you know, in the time frame for this decision, uh, it would have, um, uh, I would say, a, a modest impact. I mean, certainly it, it's, 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 you know, a very good thing to, uh, to uh, reduce the carbon footprint. The other thing that we would have in mind and, you know, difficult to quantify um, is the, the overall fact that, you know, as you know, we've indicated earlier, uh, Genesee 1 and 2, you know, we've we've looked at it and the repowering based on a 20-year outlook and that, you know, uh, 
uh, the returns that you've seen uh, are based on that 20-year outlook. But we've also indicated that the, the physical life of those facilities are probably 35 years. And certainly um, with carbon capture associated with those uh, facilities, that greatly extends the economic uh, life of those facilities or at least an economic life that we can count on. So, you know, there's a lot of very significant moving pieces around uh, around this initiative. Um, but, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, absolutely expect that it, you know, for us to move forward uh, with it, it will be adding to the bottom line. It will, you know, make sense in a conventional sense, but will, would also, you know, certainly uh, make sense for the organization from an ESG perspective. Got it. And the last question, just on Enchantment, you talked about sourcing some credits in Eastern Canada. So those are third party, and, and I guess just what sort of, I, I suspect they are, maybe I'm wrong about that, but if they are third party. What's the risk in terms of around procurement of RECs in the market in terms of liquidity sourcing um, going forward? Um, you know, don't, I mean, for obvious reasons, because maybe this is the first that, that many of you have heard about it, um, or that kind of activity, we, we're not um, overly keen on, on too much disclosure around that, but, you know, we don't, we don't anticipate that there's uh, much risk around, uh, around the uh, acquisition of uh, credits to, uh, to uh, cover that, uh, that Labatt position. Okay, thank you. Our next question comes from Ben Pham from BMO. Please go ahead. Hi, thanks. Good morning. I had a question on the Clover Bar uh, facilities. Um, looking at the, the production and the, the strong pricing during, during a quarter, it didn't look like you, you ran your, your Clover Bar facility that, uh, as that much during a quarter, despite strong pricing. You know, is, is, is what hap like, what's happening there? Is it is it more coal plants economically withholding that the clover bars can't clear uh, at, at the high prices they're, they're bidding? Or is, like how, how does clover bar fit now in, in your portfolio? Do you, you usually run those plants pretty hard when, when you see pricing conditions like this. Yeah, during periods where we uh, uh, would utilize uh, clover bar more when there's uh, volatility in price and we have a, a hedged position, and what we saw in Q1 is that um, all of our coal facilities were had high availability, and therefore, you know, we we ran those facilities and and didn't have the opportunity to to run Cbec the way that you may have seen it uh, utilized in periods where where we were more hedged. So those opportunities really uh, reflect, you know, sort of the overall supply in in the market um, as well as our our portfolio position. Okay, so you still see. Clover is still strategic overall for you. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Okay. Maybe that on my second question on on carbon capture. I mean, we we've been through a couple of cycles of of this too before. You've you've worked on uh, on some of these uh, various technologies. I mean, what's maybe can you tell us what's what's different this this time versus before? So, you know, one of the one of the major elements is that you know we we are and you know the country is looking at a uh, a profile of you know escalating and and material carbon prices, which is not what what we had seen before. So that that obviously has a, a significant implication. Also, you have uh, a more concerted effort by uh, both the federal government and the provincial government to meaningfully bring down carbon emissions. So, for example, what we're talking about with Genesee, you know, two and three, or pardon me, uh, one and two in terms of, um, you know, carbon capture associated with it in, in the dollars is actually about a third of the, you know, current uh, federal expectation of carbon reduction in the power sector from you know what is what they would have expected to otherwise happen so there's a, a strong intent to not demonstrate technology and see where it goes and, and and evolve it in time 
there's a drive by both the federal and the provincial government to reduce emissions by, you know, 2030. Um, this isn't a, a, a large experiment. There is a real drive to put real financial support behind making these projects move forward. And, you know, for example, our time frame associated with, you know, an, an ex expedited process of, of moving this forward is, you know, we could be putting carbon in the ground in 2026. You know, it's there's there is you know a little bit of an urgency here on the on on uh, from both the, the provincial and the federal government to to actually move forward with these technologies. The other thing that's very different is that there's been a lot of work done, and, and we've done a lot. And as you you pointed out, you know, historically we put about with some government funding associated with it about 50 million into carbon capture and, and storage. Uh, potential development so you know we're, we're quite knowledgeable in the area our cost of us you know of, of preliminary studies is a couple of million dollars and feed studies is you know before our internal cost somewhere around five million dollars so you know as opposed to what historically people think of as the 30 or 40 million dollar touch for uh, being able to to have these projects developed so you know, I would say there's, there's, um, you know, this isn't a case of, you know, let's develop the technology and see where it goes and what the potential is, which is, I would say, you know, the prior uh, direction of, of the federal and, and provincial government going back a few years to we actually have to reduce carbon and we have to put money behind it in order to do it. All right, that's very useful. Thank you. And I'm not sure Darcy's on a call. Best wishes in retirement and congratulations on everybody else in their appointments. Thank you. Thank you. I'll pass that on to Darcy. Our next question comes from John Mould from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'd like to just start with gas-fired or potential gas-fired acquisitions. The, the Trudeau government's increased its 2030 emissions reduction targets the, the Biden administration has articulated some you know pretty ambitious targets probably with a tough legislative path but how do these increased decarbonization ambitions inform your thinking on a potentially acquiring midlife strategically located gas fired assets so you know obviously we have to see how some of this plays out and as you said you know the the Biden administration and, and what they speak of in terms of targets um, uh, particularly as it affects the power industry, are, are fairly aggressive. Um, so, and you know, the the um, the Republicans have you know a very very different view. So, you know, what comes out at the end of the day, we expect to be some sort of compromise in the middle. I mean, what what we do see as very positive is the fact that. Both uh, parties in the United States are very keen on technology and on uh, technologies like carbon capture and storage. So um, what we see particularly with large facilities like the ones uh, we have like Decatur is technologies, you know, are evolving and will evolve in time where there's a high you know, possibility or probability that one of these technologies can be associated with, um, with our facilities and, and uh, you know, reduce carbon from that perspective. You know, when we look at new opportunities, certainly we'll be thinking about the potential for uh, carbon capture and storage and, and, and carbon utilization. I think the other thing to point out is is a little bit of the 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 the, the rationale as to why we look at midlife uh, natural gas assets is that you know if you take a, a natural gas plant at you know say a, uh, a 30 year life or you know 40 year life somewhere in that range you know these assets you know when we buy them end up with sort of a you know 10 to 20 year time frame uh, our future and. You tack that on to today, you know, that doesn't, you know, we don't have other than, you know, potentially Genesee, you know, one and two, we don't have any assets that actually, you know, natural gas assets that without repowering or, or other significant investments would move it to a 2050 time frame. So, again, that's part of the, the general you know, lower risk approach associated with uh, pursuing midlife natural gas assets. 
so we do continue to monitor technology and i think as we've said we'll you know we're looking to apply technology to, to genesee one and two and learn from it and and also watch what's about uh, evolving with other uh, technologies and then potentially uh apply carbon reduction technologies to the goreways and to the decaders and to you know to the arlingtons as we move forward Okay, great. Thanks for that context. Uh, and then just maybe moving to your Alberta Renewables Pipeline, you've had success with Strathmore and, and, and your latest solar project just in terms of announcing those as merchant and then, and then contracting them with corporate buyers. I'm just wondering if you can give us a sense of what your potential earlier stage pipeline in Alberta looks like right now and, and what the timeline could look like for making an investment decision on, on some of those potential uh, projects. So, you know, we are, in Alberta, we're continuously looking at uh, renewable projects. And, you know, our success um, in, in um, moving projects forward and contracting and so on is, you know, has sort of increased the, the lineup of people wanting to talk to us in terms of, you know, junior developers with potential opportunities. So there's a lot of opportunities out there, you know, for, for capital power. Having said that, they're all not necessarily, you know, good, uh, good projects. So that continues. We also are looking at, you know, some of the some of the um, um, projects and, and relationships that, that we control. And uh, one of the things that we're we're monitoring and watching is the degree to which we're seeing um, uh, projects uh, and uh, contract uh, possibilities evolve. Um, you know, one of the things, as you may recall, that, that pushed us to, um, you know, move forward on the Enchant project was the fact that, you know, uh, Strathmore was, you know, already filled up. And so um, we're monitoring that as well. So, and, you know, we expect that outlook to, to, to be very positive and to be very fruitful for capital power in the, in the relatively near term. So to make a, a long story short, wouldn't be surprised at all if we moved forward on another renewable project in Alberta this year. Okay, great. Uh, I'll leave it there. Thanks for taking my questions. Our next question comes from Andrew Kuski from Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning. I appreciate some of the enhanced disclosure on your embedded renewables business. And I guess the question really drives to... Um, some others have structurally separated this business, but historically, you've always taken the view of having this really under one roof. Has anything really changed, in your opinion, from the past to where we are with the disclosures now? I mean, you know, Andrew, I, I think as you you know, um, and as we've you know discussed over the years, we continually look at that. That's always, uh, you know, whether it was the, the quick spin-offs that took place for high-yield organizations and, and so on and so forth, um, you know, through time. It's something that's always there and, and always something that, that we should be actively considering. You know, as we go through it and, and have, a, you know, fresh eyes uh, on it uh, as, a, you know, how the world is evolving, you know what what you end up what ends up happening is you've got uh, at the end of the day if you did something like spun off you know our renewables business you end up with two relatively small businesses um, you certainly get the benefit on the renewable side but uh, you also you know would would be experiencing on the uh, on the thermal side a little bit uh, of a you know lower multiples obviously. And given their sizes of the two businesses at this point, you know, don't really see that as being practical. And if you look at it in terms of a relationship of, you know, uh, dropping down assets and so on and so forth, you know, one of the things that this size drives is that you continually have to look at, you know, consolidation from uh, an overall, you know, risk uh, perspective and, and from a you know rating agency perspective, which drives again um, some limitation on how far you could push a renewable uh, entity in terms of uh, its investment potential and the degree to which it could actually um, uh, throw off cash for capital power. So 
you know, at this point, um, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars aren't, aren't lined up for that kind of a play. But again, we continually look at it, and and size does matter uh, for sure. Okay, that's that's helpful uh, context on things, and, and and maybe just focusing perhaps on the sun. Uh, when you think about you know Southport and Roxborough, you know, effectively going offline, is there anything you can do with a physical footprint there? Uh, in particular, you've got grid connectivity, and so is there solar that you could put on site? Uh, I mean, I know there's some physical limitations with the sites, but is there anything you can do to to really optimize the footprints you have, given some of the renewables initiatives in the state? So um, when you when uh, when you look at the, the physical footprint of, of Roxborough, it's really too small to, uh, to to do anything. You know, it's a regular sort of industrial size. There's no real excess land there. Uh, so from a renewable perspective, it it, it isn't a, a, a good site. Um, although, as you say, you know, from a connectivity to the grid and so on, it's it's got some positive attributes. Uh, when you look at Southport, um, it's actually property leased from Duke. And even though it's a bigger footprint, it still isn't big enough to really uh, to, to establish a, a significant uh, renewable project. It, uh, it, again, it's just too small. So, and again, com- complicated by the fact that it's actually leased, leased from Duke. Okay, very helpful. Thank you. Our next question comes from Maurice Choi from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, I just want to pick up on your question about um, size as well as, you know, tying back again to an earlier comment about uh, the sale of potential assets. Obviously, it sounds like there is a lot less urgency now in terms of potentially selling certain renewable assets, which was the comment made back in the investor day. Um, and Brian, you alluded to how if you did sell um, the renewables, the size of the company might be a little too small. Um, curious to understand what is the target size um, that you're thinking of in your, in your mind? And, and along with that, how do you approach, um, I guess, the thesis between capital recycling versus you know, gathering assets for size? Well, I think you know the when one just sits back and says, "So how do you, how do you actually realize the value associated with the renewable assets?" Uh, I think, as you know, Sandra's uh, commented a number of times, you know, those would be the assets that we recycle. Those are the ones where we think that there may be, you know, a little bit more value than the value reflected in the mass in, in the market you know, with us holding it. So that realization, we think, is a way of, of, of again, recognizing the value of, of the, the renewable assets from a shareholder perspective. So those would be the primary candidates. And as we look at, you know, needs to, to raise capital, um, it is definitely in the wheelhouse of something that we would be actively looking at, you know, every time we consider, you know, raising capital. Again, where they are in the market today, the the, the uh, values in which you know renewable assets are are, are uh, achieving, um, you know, it's 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 again definitely in our wheelhouse to be looking at recycling those assets as an avenue of ongoing realization of value for uh, for shareholders. I think we've we've commented in the past that um, you know as we move forward and we see. You know, increasing renewable opportunities. It's entirely possible that you know part of our approach to the renewable business is to um, you know develop and build you know beyond, I'll say, our our ability to to, to currently finance and and get into a cycle of you know consistently and systematically um, uh, recycling uh, renewable assets, realizing that value to sort of fuel further growth and further size in the organization. So we recognize that, you know, the, um, the potentially uh, recycling renewable assets is, is, a, is a significantly positive value proposition. And, and, and I guess recognizing all those comments, going back again to the size, sounds like you're not quite there yet. Um, is it one where you want to double or triple your size before 
uh, you know, you, you go on a more active capital recycling approach, or are we close to the mark now? No, actually, you know, if if you look at uh, um, uh, you know significantly recycling uh, uh, renewable assets, is something that that you know right now, as you know, with you know 1.7 billion dollars of spend in front of us, although it's as Sandra said, it's smoothed out a bit and so on. You know, we um, um, if we saw significantly more renewable opportunities, you know, developing uh, in Canada and the United States um, in the, the near to the medium term, you know, you might see a fairly active, you know, uh, renewable uh, recycling program just just because we're able to capture that value for shareholders. Uh, and you know, restocking it and growing it. Uh, you know, there are some degree of you know limitations to how quickly we could grow to the extent that we can develop and build beyond that. Uh, an excellent model is to be recycling that capital and and actually accelerating our growth, despite the fact you know visibly it looks like we're you know uh, selling assets that we otherwise could have held on to. It actually could significantly fuel our growth. That makes sense. And and just to finish up on a um, slightly different topic, um, and this is about your know, carbon nanotubes. It sounds like there is obviously appropriate support uh, for CCUS projects like yours here in Canada. And if I tie together many of the comments you made today about existing gas assets and potential future acquisitions of gas assets, a lot does depend on your success relating to C2CNT. So. Could you share with us if there's any other obstacles or any obstacles left we've got to CTCNT, be that technology or even the commerciality of the products? So C2CNT is certainly, and I think, you know, um, there's a you know, significant uh, um, opportunities around C2CNT, but I think we've said all along, you know, that is one of the uh, avenues of reducing the carbon exposure, you know, everything from, you know, the, the simple trading, which is, you know, is how we prefer not to reduce our carbon exposure because that doesn't actually reduce your risk to where we're physically reducing carbon coming out of the stack, such as CCUS or uh, C2CNT or ultimately reducing carbon in, in, uh, on, on some other avenue. Um, but but not necessarily associated right at our facilities. So you know when we look at that profile and where C2CNT fits, you know it's uh, in time we'd expect to have, have invested or participated in a number of uh, carbon reduction uh, applications to, uh, to to be able to, to reduce our carbon profile. With C2CNT, you know, as we look at it, you know, continues to have a, a robust outlook. Although I think, as we've cautioned, the, you know, the actual, I'll call it, you know, the significant escalation in, in utilization and acceptance, you know, will not be immediate. Just simply because there's usually on the very large applications uh, an interface, you know, uh, technology challenge to overcome, such as cement. Uh, as, as we've talked about in the past. And that, by the way, is moving along and, you know, the tests are, are promising from that perspective. And so we, you know, again, we see that, uh, that moving forward. So, uh, again, C2CNT continue to see it as, as very promising and, and, and robust and will, you know, add a significant amount of shareholder value in time and mitigate, you know, some of our carbon risk, but it's not the only answer. Um, even in that space, you know, you may find in time that we're looking at other technologies, and so there's again, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of significant potential associated with it. And but in, in the general space, um, again, we're looking at a whole range of, of different kinds of technology to, uh, to to mitigate carbon. Great, thank you very much. Once again, if you have a question, please press star then one. Our next question comes from Najee Baydoun from Industrial Alliance Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, just wanted to go back to the topic of uh, developing versus selling renewables for, for a second. So 
you know, besides spinning off the renewables portfolio or select asset sales, uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on what are some of the other avenues you're considering to potentially uh, recognize uh, the full value of those assets uh, versus what is being attributed to them in the market today? So, uh, you know, one of the things in, in one of the approaches as opposed to, you know, fully outright selling the the assets is to, um, you know, uh, work with, a, say, a, you know, a, a financial player um, and, you know, jointly developing, you know, assets that are sort of well beyond, you know, our ability to, to finance and in addition to getting, um, you know, our proportionate share of, of the economics also, you know, gaining fees associated with uh, with with operating the facilities and so on. So, you know, there's other approaches to you know elevate the the value of of the assets. You know, in the longer term, you know, when you're in a position where you've got more on the development uh, uh, and and construction side than than you can you know reasonably finance. Um, then, uh, then it, it opens up actually a number of different opportunities and ways to increase the value around those assets um, beyond just a simple sale, and you know, or partnerships with a uh, uh, you know which uh, um, uh, ongoing partnerships on on the development side or just uh, uh, one-off uh, partnerships associated with uh, with either one or a group of those assets. So there's a, a number of different ways in which, you know, value can be realized associated with them. Appreciate um, those comments. Um, uh, are, are there any uh, updates that you can provide us on the island generation recontracting? Just wondering when you expect to be able to finalize that initiative. Um, you know, there's really no change in BC Hydro's ability to you know, uh, move forward on the uh, execution of, of those kinds of contracts. So, um, you, you know, and it's not just, uh, you know, uh, island generation. There's a number of other facilities in British Columbia that are just being, you know, held up for, I'll call it, technical reasons. So, again, not sure when that will end, but, uh, you know, continue to receive assurance from BC Hydro that they absolutely need the asset and, um, the question isn't if, it's just when. Okay, got it. And uh, I just have one last question on, uh, on really a sort of corporate partnerships or relationships and what kind of opportunities that opens up for you. I'm just wondering if you can talk about how the agreement with Labatt has maybe informed your approach to corporate contracting uh, and if you could talk about any uh, opportunities that you see uh, uh, with other uh, sort of corporate uh, customers in Canada or the U.S. to uh, to uh, access renewable energy. So, um, you, you know, you uh, you put uh, Labatt's together with the other one that you know we announced earlier this year, but but still haven't indicated uh, who the off taker is. You know, those are those are very. Um, good contracts, um, and you know what we have found that unlike the early renewable contracts that were available in the United States, and although we aren't a direct counterparty in in some of those, but you know some of our uh, wind facilities in the United States are actually backed through a third party by you know sort of the Amazons, the Googles, etc. So you know we get some insight from from that perspective as well. And it's gone from where it's kind of a simple contract of, you know, uh, renewables entering into, a, you know, an, an energy portfolio of, of uh, large uh, uh, organizations to where they become more and more sophisticated and they're looking for more and more, you know, elements around the contracts, more, um, you know, drilling down more into the energy side and, you know, I I'd, I would just say that whole um, drive is becoming more mature from the customer perspective. It's sort of, I mean, if you think of it simply, it's it's gone from, you know, a, a, a procurement organization, part of the organization like supply chain, to you know more committed and focused resources on 
on energy procurement who are you know have greater expertise so that market is maturing and they're asking for more and they're looking for more creativity in in the solutions and so you know for example the discussion with labats was over a number of months uh, a large number of months to get the agreement that works best for them and best for us i think that maturity in the market although it takes more time as i said earlier we've got you know more levers we've got you know more things that we can bring to the table than many of the other uh, people we're competing with for contracts so we think that maturity is actually helpful to us so um and you know we expect that that kind of maturity on the uh, on the buyer side will continue to evolve and uh, again that evolution is uh, is very positive to, for us. So, for example, in the Labatt steel, it's targeted to cover, you know, their demand for uh, the overall, uh, you know, uh, Canadian uh, side of their business. And in fact, you know, the renewables getting broadly sourced to kind of emulate uh, where the demand is. You know, if you looked at a contract, say, two years ago or three years ago. You, know, you wouldn't have nearly that degree of sophistication. So, you know, again, it's a it's a it's a continually changing market, but we think that evolution is to our advantage. Appreciate uh, all that great color. Thank you. This concludes the question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to Mr. Randy Ma for any closing remarks. All right. Thanks, Shauna. If there are no more questions, we will conclude our conference call. Thanks again for joining us today and for your interest in Capital Power. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.